We're going to be in Mark this morning, Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. We've been studying, uh, learning a lot about honor. So when you get there, let's honor God and his word by standing to our feet. Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus rejected at Nazareth. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? How is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And how could he do mighty work there? Sorry. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can grab a seat this morning, Westside. We are so glad that you've chosen to be with us today. If it's your first time here, my name's Jason. I'm the pastor here. I've got a few just quick um, announcements that I want to give a little bit of time to. As Stu said, we are in our series learning about honor and what it means to honor. And we've looked at the scriptures. This word is a big deal in the Bible that we're learning but one of the ways that we can honor God is through our finances. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. And the Bible talks directly about honor and wealth and a primary way that we can honor the Lord. So what we're going to do on May 29th is we're going to present you with an opportunity. You're going to hear a lot more about this next week for our May We Honor offering. And this will go just to our um, general fund that ministry happens. And so we say this at Westside all of the time. Ministry does not follow money. Money follows ministry. Where God guides you, he will provide for you. And what this is, is this is an opportunity of obedience for you. That God literally says in his word to test me in this area. If you can trust me with your finances, then you can trust me with anything. So we want you and your families to be praying towards this, to be praying about a specific amount, and you'll be hearing more about this. Um, next, I'm really excited about this because this has been in the works for quite some time. Um, Jesus, when he uh, goes to the temple and actually is heartbroken at what is taking place in a church service, um, it says that he cleared everybody out of it. And he says this, he says, my father's house will be a house of prayer is what Jesus says. He doesn't say a house of singing, a house of preaching. He says, my father's house is a house of prayer. And I believe that the health of a church rises and falls on its prayer life. And so starting next Sunday at 8.30 in the morning before the, uh, our service at 10 o'clock, Westside is going to be having what we're calling the boiler room prayer time. Now, if you've been around here, the term boiler room actually comes from a story that Charles Haddon Spurgeon told. Some young students were touring his church, and they wanted to know the secret to Spurgeon's success. And he says, well, that's in the boiler room, which back then was like the utility closet, right? That's where the electrical outlets and all of that stuff was. And he took them below the pulpit and opened the door, and the room was packed full of people who were members of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and they were praying. And Spurgeon said, this is the secret to our success. And so next Sunday, starting at 8.30, it will be a time of prayer. Um, our board member, uh, Alan, who just gave the announcements, is going to be running that. So he'll be back there at the information table. If you have any questions about that, it is going to be a guided time of prayer. It is going to be beautiful. And I believe, listen to me, 
God says in Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and marvelous things that you have not yet known. So that tells me this, God is not lacking to answer our prayers. We are lacking to pray. And so we believe that we will see some phenomenal things happen. So if you want any more information, that's out there at the information table, and you can talk to Alan Baum. But today we're continuing in our May We Honor series. And just to recap as to where we've been, we've used this definition um, as what honor is. Honor is the act of holding people and positions in high Value that that's what the word honor means. We said that it's been used over 180 times in the scriptures, and what it means is to hold people and positions in high value. Last week, the parents loved the sermon last week because it was children, honor your parents, right? But we learned as to why, and we said this, that we honor God by honoring our parents. That you cannot say that you honor a God that you don't see. We spent a lot of time on that. You can go on our website and check that out. You can't say that you honor God that you don't see and that you don't honor your parents that you do see. God says that, that it doesn't work that way. That the fundamental relationship that God uses us to teach us how to honor him is to honor our parents. We had a beautiful time last week, dedicated babies, Mother's Day pictures. It was incredible. This week, um, I want to spend a little bit of time of showing the opposite of what honor is. And um, I think a lot of times we can get clarity when we compare and contrast. We've spent a lot of time as to what honor is. And so this week, I want to look at what dishonor is and what that really means. And in my studies this week, I ran across an incredible article. In 2012, a 19-year-old man named Dakota Guerin was charged with first-degree theft and had his bond set at $40,000. What did Dakota do? Dakota thought he was doing some part-time work at a lady's house and thought that she no longer needed her $100,000 coin collection. So Dakota was 19 years old and thought, let me get those. And so he snatched them, and obviously she found out, went to the authorities. When the authorities began to investigate Dakota, and they said, what did you do with these coins, and where did you sell them, right? Because, man, this is worth $100,000. Let's go sell this, get on Pawn Stars, and make a little bit of money, right? Um, Dakota did not sell the coins. Dakota went to a local pizza spot, bought his girlfriend and himself some pizza with coins that were worth somewhere around $200 to $500. Then he went to the movies and the arcade and spent one Liberty coin that was worth about $18,000. $500, right? So, of course, it was a young kid, right? He steals $100,000 worth of coins and goes to the arcade, right? And spends it. And you're like, what in the world does this have to do with dishonor? Well, if honor means holding all people in positions in high value, what you could say is, is that Dakota dishonored those coins. He dishonored them. That he used the coins in such a way that did not express their value or their worth. One coin is worth $18,000, and you went and played Pac-Man with that coin, right? That's a way that you could say that was dishonored. If honor, here's the definition and the word in the original language for the two of you that care, means to value, respect, or highly esteem. Here it is, to treat as precious, weighty, or valuable. That's what honor is. So then, dishonor must mean the opposite. And in the original language, this is what it looks like. Atomos is the word, and it means this. 
to treat as common or ordinary. Think about that. If honor is, this is worth something, this is valuable, and through my words and through my actions, I am going to express the worth and value of that, dishonor means to treat as ordinary and as mundane. And what we said is, through the work of Gary Smalley, who has done something around um, 10,000 couples, he has counseled in marriage counseling, he said, the missing ingredient in all relationships, not just marriage, is honor. He said in all of his some 30 years of counseling, he has never once had someone sit in his office and say, you know what, Gary, the problem is, is that I'm valued way too much in this relationship, okay? You know what, Gary, the problem is, is they honor me just too much. He said that's never happened. And at the end of the day, what it gets down to is expressing that value of what honor is. We said that honor is a big deal um, in the Bible and that dishonor is equally a big deal. So here's what I want to show you something. I believe that in just a moment, I can show you from the pages of Scripture why the world is the way that it is. Um, I think if there's a problem that we see in the world in the way that it operates, honor is the bullseye of what we're talking about. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your Bible. We love the Word of God here at Westside. I want you to turn to the book of Romans. You're going to turn to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Okay, Romans chapter 1. Um, we're using our Bibles, guys, in church. How crazy is this, right? This is, I love to hear that sound. My goodness gracious, it's beautiful. Romans chapter 1. And before I read these verses, you've got to know, Romans 1 is like the Apostle Paul's indictment of humanity, okay? If you want to know how the world operates, I challenge you to post Romans chapter 1 as your Facebook status and then sit back and watch your day get crazy, okay? Um, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome, and he's saying, hey, listen, here's the problem with the world, and, and here's what's going on. And in verse 18, he says these words, Romans, 18, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I want your eyes on Scripture because, listen, the messenger means nothing, but the message means everything. We don't put the Bible verses on the screen for the main text because we want you to have your Bible and to see them. If you don't have one or own one, there's one in the pew back there. That's our gift to you. We really believe that God wrote a book and that that can really change your life, okay? So Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says this. For the wrath of God, we're not even 10 minutes into the sermon, guys. We're like, the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is a big statement. The Apostle Paul just said to the Christians who are facing persecution, they're going, hey Paul, we're following God's commands and we're dying for it. Things aren't going that well. When's justice going to happen? Does God even care about this? And Paul goes, hey listen, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And it's revealed to a world that by their nature suppress the truth. So what that means is the world knows the answer. But because of our sinful broken hearts, we would rather argue and complain than actually admit that there is a God, there is a creator, that he is not silent, but he has spoken and he sits on a throne and rules the universe with his feet up. The world hates that. Why? Because it's an argument of authority. If there is a creation, there is a creator. And if there is a creator, then by the very design, the creator has the authority to say how things operate. Are you following with me? They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. 
so we're in the theological deep end right now. This is considered, for all of you who care, um, special revelation and common revelation. Common revelation is Psalm 19, verse 1. For the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above his handiworks. What does that mean? When you stand by the ocean and you see the abyss and it looks like it never ends. No one stands at the ocean or the base of the Rocky Mountains or looks at the northern lights and says, man, I'm pretty awesome. Hey, babe, come look at the ocean. And you know what I really feel when I'm looking at the ocean is that I'm an incredible human being, right? Nobody says that. You feel really small in those moments. And what the Bible says is that in those moments, God is shouting at you. This is common revelation. But God has also revealed himself through special revelation, through the word of God and the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, the world knows the answer. The world sees God's creation, but they suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Here's the verse, verse 21. For although... They knew God. They did not. What's the word? Come on, lift it up. What's the word? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then here it is. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Translation, everybody knows in their conscience. Everybody knows in their heart of hearts that there is a God. They might not know Jesus. They might not know this, that, or the other. But everybody knows at some point in their mind this thing didn't come out of thin air, man. And what Paul is saying is they refuse that because if they admit that, then they have to submit to that God's authority. And what is the primary way that humanity rejects God's authority? By not honoring him as God. By not saying this God is valuable and we will in such a way live and with our words and our wealth and our actions, we will not live in such a way that gives this God honor. But it goes even further than that. You can go back to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. What's even more interesting is, is that what we know from this text is that it's not just the world that dishonors God. What we see in Mark 6 is God's very own people dishonoring him. What I love what the ESV study Bible says about Romans 1 is this. The root sin is the failure to value God above all things so that he is not honored and praised as he should be. Guys, we are on it. Listen to me. Some of you have been living in this cycle of you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You believe that God wrote a book to the best of your abilities. You believe, know, and love, and serve Jesus. But you live in this cycle of chronic sin. And there's this sin. And so you sin and then confess. And then you sin and then confess. And then you sin and confess. And then there's guilt. And then there's shame. And then you back away for a while. And then God's people pursue you. And you're like, you know what? I'm not those things. And so I'm going to confess. I'm going to live a certain way now. But then you fall back into that temptation. And you sin because you are dealing with the fruit. You are not dealing with the root. And what Paul is saying is this, and this is the sentence, dishonor is the root of all disobedience. Dishonor is the root of all disobedience. 
Let's break this down to your children. If you tell your child not to do blank and your child, and you see it on their face, the wheels turning, you're like, you are plotting some serious stuff right now, okay? And then you leave the room, and then that child weighs the options, and that child pursues blank and does not obey the words that you have spoken. Listen to me. That is not about your child's behavior. Do not discipline just behavior. In that moment, that is about your child's belief. Because in that moment, your child believed that that thing was more valuable than the word that you spoke to them. And what Paul says is this. In any moment of sin and in any moment of temptation, we believe that that thing, that person, that act, that thought, whatever that is, that is more valuable and precious to us in that moment than God. And when you say it out loud, you're like, that sounds awful. Exactly, right? That's the brokenness and the wickedness of what sin does. But there's something even worse than that. Um, that actually for us as, as believers, we can fake this honor thing. So, so what we do as, as Christians is sometimes we fall in the religious trap. And so what we say is, oh, that's right, Pastor. It's not about um, behavior. It's about belief. Amen. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. That's right. It's about belief, this, that, and the other. And so when people are like, how's it going? And you're like, fine. And you almost committed a felony on the way to church with your family in the car. Or everything's falling apart and you can't sleep at night due to the anxiety and this, that, and the other. And things are not fine. In that moment, you fear how you look in honesty and transparency rather than actually being transparent and honest. And Jesus says that that, that is hypocrisy. Um, look at what he says here in Matthew 15. He's speaking to the Pharisees. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, right? You got to love Jesus. This is sweet, tender baby Jesus, okay? You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Please listen to me. This is dangerous. We are on it. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is not atheism or something like that outside the church. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is apathy inside the church. It's hypocrisy from within. It is to have everything appearing right on the outside. But as Jesus would say, on the inside, we are filled with dead men's bones. It is to have all the appearance of godliness, but on the inside, you really know the last time that you really even prayed or anything like that. So when it comes to this idea of dishonor, this is a big deal. And, and really here in the West, um, we, we struggle with honor and shame and dishonor a bit differently than the rest of the world does. So in the East, um, and especially in Middle Eastern cultures, honor and shame are a very big deal. Um, we learned last week that, you know, one of the reasons why COVID was so devastating to France is because in some homes, four or five generations were in one single home because you honored your parents and you took care of them and you would never bring shame or dishonor on the family. And so maybe this will help. This is a picture of a Japanese samurai. And I just think it's cool, and that's why it's in the sermon, okay, right? Um, Japanese samurais are incredible. Like, the, just the history of these guys is awesome. Um, but what we know through history 
is that they have a phrase that actually looks like this, and it became adopted by some branches of the United States military, and you probably know what this is. The samurai would fight on the field for the honor of Japan and the family. And before they would go into battle, the chief captain or the leader would look at each samurai in the eye and say, death before dishonor. That today we will die before we turn our backs and retreat. Why? Is that just some sick and twisted like death? Like what does that mean? Well, they understood something, and it's the big idea of the sermon today, and it's this. Dishonor brings death to all relationships. They understood something. Dishonor brings death to all relationships. Do you want to sabotage your marriage? Do you want to destroy the relationship with your children, with your family? Dishonor does that. And in the passage today in Mark 6, it's one of my favorite little glimpses into the life of Jesus. It's a very famous um, phrase that Jesus says in Mark chapter 6, verse 4. Do you have your Bible? Um, This is the thrust of the message. This is where I'm getting the big idea from. Look in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Now look at this in verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people, and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So, if dishonor brings death to all relationships, and especially to our relationship with Jesus Christ, I think what we've done is we have established the argument. And now the question that you should have in your mind is this. How do I know if I'm doing this? I mean, what does this look like? Is this what's going on in my relationships, in my marriage, in my parenting? How do I know that I'm dishonoring my relationship with God or with this individual? I want to look at three quick things, okay? The first thing is this. Dishonor assumes the worst step number one you want to destroy your relationships dishonor will do that and the first step to doing that is always assuming the worst about any individual or any relationship or your relationship with god look at what the verse says in verse three um verse two and on the sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue so jesus is at home Um, This is a little bit after he's turned 30. Did you know that Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles away from his hometown? And his hometown was probably smaller than Donovan. Like, this is crazy, okay? So he's at home, he's in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Huge, huge uh, word in the original language. I mean, just, um, well, let's do this. I want you to gasp. I'm going to read it again, and I want you to gasp because, God forbid, we have fun in church, okay? And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. What were they saying, right? And they were saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Verse 3 is it. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Okay, we've got to do a little work here. In the Bible, when you see genealogies, a lot of times you'll see the phrase, the son of, the son of, the son of, and it lists the father's name because it was a patriarchal society. You were known by your last name and who your father was. They did not say that. Why? Um, Remember at Christmas, we celebrate it all the time, and we think it's all nice and sweet. And then the angel came to Mary and said, Behold, you are with child. And Mary's like, How can this be? I'm a virgin. And then Joseph's like, 
I'm in Mori now, and the, the results are in, Joseph, and you're, right? Like, what, this, this was major, major drama. Did you know that Jesus got this slur constantly in his ministry? Look at this verse in John chapter 8. He's arguing with the Pharisees. Look at what the Pharisees say. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Translation, Jesus, you are illegitimate. They are literally, from the very definition of the curse word, calling Jesus a fatherless son. They are assuming the worst about him. They are slandering Jesus. And so because they are doing that, they're astonished with his teaching. So here's the thing. Jesus is the way, is the truth, is the life, and he is speaking the very word of God to them. That was probably an incredible sermon. Would you agree? Because God was giving the sermon, okay? Right? The author who wrote the Bible is preaching the sermon. They are receiving None of it. None of it. Do you see the application? We could go a number of ways with this here. So for some of us who are like, um, man, if I could just, man, you know what? If Jesus could just be right here in front of me and tell me what to do next, it would be so much. E no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because our hearts are so broken and bent toward unbelief. Here's what I'm trying to say. You can't accept the truth when you've already assumed the worst. It doesn't matter. Case closed. You cannot accept the truth when you have already assumed the worst. So when you are entering into your relationships, or if you are peeking over the fence at Christianity, trying to figure this God thing out, if you are bringing in your assumptions and the baggage that you have, you have already signed, sealed, and delivered the fate of that relationship. Dishonor brings death to all relationships. How do we do that? We assume the worst. The second thing is this. Dishonor desires conflict. It desires conflict. Look at verse 3 at the end of verse 3. So it says they were astonished. They say the slang, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon? Are not his sisters with us? Can I pause right here and just do a little rabbit trail? Squirrel, okay? Um, some of us grew up uh, maybe with a Roman Catholic background. And praise be to God for your grandmother or your grandfather who prayed for you, who wanted, like, at one point in my young, dumb ministry, I would try to bash that. Listen, your grandmother loved you, and she loved God to the best of her abilities, and she was doing what she was trying to do. But some of us were taught about this theological concept called the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's why we need to pray to her to intercede for us. There's a number of things wrong with that. The first one is, is that Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. We have a direct line to Jesus Christ. Secondly, you see it in black and white that Jesus had brothers and he had sisters. Okay? So now back to the text. And uh, Jesus, and, and then it says, is this not him who's here with us? And they took offense at him. This word took offense huge in the original language. It's actually where we get the word scandal from in the English language. And what the word means is it means to trip over something, that it's a barrier. They cannot receive anything that Jesus is saying because they've already assumed the worst about Jesus. And because they've assumed the worst about Jesus, now they are in conflict with Jesus. They have drawn the line in the sand, and now there is conflict and sparks are flying. And one commentator, Danny Aiken, says this, His works they cannot deny, and his words they cannot handle. 
but they do not care. In spite of the overwhelming evidence, they will not believe he is the Christ, the Son of God. The word also means to distance yourself. You trip and then you distance yourself. Do you see all the implications of this? This should have massive implications on some of our relationships in the room today. Some of us in the room genuinely believe that if we can make our argument and if that person could just see my what they don't get, I've always, but for one time they need to, and if I could just, then they will, no, they will not. No, they will not. Um, this saying comes from the old rabbinic tradition, but it's, but it's this. Before that sentence, how about this? Being offended is a choice. They've chosen this. They have assumed what they believe and know about Jesus. And now what Jesus says, they are choosing to take it personal. This is, this is a phenomenal thought. Are you guys ready? I need you to lean in. Hopefully you've had some coffee because this is a deep, deep sentence here, okay? You ready? Look up here. Not everything is about you. Let's just pray right now. Father, we just write. It is a conscious choice to be offended and to pick something up that was not laid down for you. And why does that happen? Well, here's the rabbinic sentence. We do not see things as they are. We see things as we are. We do not see things as they are. And as much of you who are arguing with me right now, uh, well, I'm self-aware. Well, great. You should know in the journey of self-awareness how unself-aware you are, okay? That's like the first step in that. We do not see things as they are. We see things as we are. So how do we bridge the application from the text to your life? And I think it's very simply this difficult question to answer. How much do our relationships suffer because of our sinful stubbornness. I used to think that stubbornness was just a word that my grandma used, right? You're so stubborn, you know. But we just read it in Romans 1. To dishonor and to treat someone as common and as ordinary. Step number one, assume the worst. What's their last name? Oh, I've known that family for years. And that Jesus had those things said about him, guys. So assume the worst and then desire the conflict. Now there's sides. Now it is us versus you. Now every Facebook status and everything is, well, I know why and I can't believe. And what are they? How much more do our relationships have to suffer because of the stubbornness of our own hearts. That is not a wonderful trait. It is a sinful trait that humanity is trapped in and that the world is suffering from. Dishonor brings death to all relationships. Assume the worst, desire conflict. And then Proverbs says this, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Do you know what I hate? I'm, I deeply, deeply struggle with this theological fact of this is how God operates. Is that grace only rolls downhill. You want grace, you get low. That's it. I'm telling you, if you want your relationships to change today... Romans chapter 12, if possible, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all. 
It's not about the whole situation. It's about what is yours to pick up and yours to lay down. And if we, by the very grace of God, supernaturally can humble ourselves to lay it down, God will change those relationships. Assume the worst, desire conflict, and the last thing is this. Dishonor disables God's blessing. I'm about to show you one of the craziest verses in all of the New Testament. It's mind-blowing to consider it. Look at the outcome of what happens. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, okay? Circle the word honor in your neighbor's Bible to make sure they're still awake, okay? Circle that word honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, verse 5. And he could not do any mighty works there. Okay, it doesn't say, and Jesus would have done a mighty work there. Doesn't say that. And he could do no mighty work there. Underline that, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So there was a little bit that happened, a little bit of miraculous, but Jesus could not do. Why? Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Circle honor, circle could not do mighty work, and then circle unbelief and connect them with a line because they all go together. Did you know that in the Gospels, all four Gospels, there's only two times in the life of Jesus Christ that he steps back and it says he marveled only twice. One is with the centurion guard when the son is dying. And he says, Jesus, come to my house. And Jesus says um, that he'll heal his son. And, and then he says, you don't even have to go. Just say the word and my son will be healed. And then Jesus marvels at the man's faith. And says, I have seen no faith like this. The second time in Jesus' hometown. The only thing that Jesus finds unbelievable is unbelief. Why? What is unbelief? I think in church we have mixed unbelief and doubt together. So some of you were raised in a tradition that if you asked any questions of God, you were shamed or dishonored because you just needed to have faith and you shouldn't ask those questions. But the reality is the scripture is filled with people who have doubt. There's a distinction. And so what is the difference between doubt and unbelief? The first is this. Doubt desires to believe, but it lacks convincing evidence, i.e. Thomas. Okay, Thomas has gotten a bad rap, all right? If I saw you get hit by the swan truck out here and then went to your funeral and we cried and I saw you buried and then a group of my friends came back and said, hey, yo, Bob's alive, man. We were just there. I would go, no, he is not. I would doubt that statement. Why? Because I am lacking convincing evidence that Bob is still alive, okay? The key is doubt desires to believe. Thomas wanted to believe. He just needed evidence. Unbelief refuses to believe in spite of convincing evidence. That's the difference. Doubt desires to believe. Unbelief refuses to believe no matter what the evidence is. And some of us have experienced this in our relationships. We've walked the path. We've assumed the worst. We've entered into conflict and thrown blows at each other. And now we are at a point in our relationship where no matter what can be laid on the table, that belief of unbelief is still there. God cannot work through a relationship that refuses the very way that God says this works. Here's what I mean by that. If you were drowning in the ocean, and a lifeguard came up to you and threw you a life preserver and said, grab this, I'm here to save you. And you said, no, and threw the life preserver away, guess what? 
you can no longer be saved, right? This is the very way that you can be saved. You cannot resist the very way that God has designed the things to work and then expect that relationship to work. Here's what I'm trying to say, guys. Here's the final sentence in closing. Dishonor is devastating because it devalues another person or it devalues God. That's why it's so devastating to our relationship. What's the antidote? To honor, to express the value of this. Something happened this past week that was pretty incredible, and it's just sort of been like a crock pot in my heart. Um, whenever we were entering in the house from T-ball practice, which is like herding cats for Piper and all of this stuff, it's a little bit hectic getting the kids baths and stuff before bed, and then you got to feed them and this, that, and the other. And, and Piper's our youngest. She, she's the baby, and she's sensitive, and she's sweet, and she's just precious. But she kept trying to interject into the conversation. She kept going, Roman, Roman, Andy, Andy, Roman, Roman, Andy, Andy, Roman, Roman, Andy, Andy. And they just did not want to hear what Piper had to say. Um, some of you older brothers and sisters probably know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? And then finally, Roman, Roman, Andy, Andy, Roman, Roman, Andy, Andy. Finally, Piper yells, y'all are acting like I don't exist she just yelled. She said, finally, I am done with this, right? Y'all are acting like I don't exist. And we were like, whoa, man, this is a big deal. And her little feelings were hurt. And so Roman and Andy apologized. And they were like, Piper, I'm sorry. What were you trying to say? And she was like, look at this. And just did like a little dance or something, okay? <laughs> like not even that big a deal, right, at all. And, and as I was getting, giving them a shower, and I just thought about her little heart, it's a big sentence, like I don't exist is. I just, I just felt the Spirit of God speak into my heart. Jason, I feel that way sometimes with you. Jason, sometimes you live and you operate like I don't exist. You see, I think we profess a lot of things. It's easy to profess it. With their lips, they honor me, but their heart's far from me. And when push comes to shove and I enter into a relationship and there's a moment where I can trust and step out, I assume the worst, I bring baggage in. So here's the application for us today. The, the first question is this, when will I start believing the best in relationships? When am I going to put things aside and go, okay, I could assume a lot here, and I know this, but I'm, I'm cheering for this relationship. I'm cheering for you, for us. I'm filling the gaps with trust. There's gaps in all relationships. When are we going to start filling the gaps with trust in the relationship? The second question is this. Where is unbelief in my own heart? Not somebody else's in, in your own heart. That God has promised something. You've claimed it in his word. He said, I'm batting a thousand. But there is something. Is it? Do you need more evidence? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So is it more Bible? Is it more prayer? Is it more being in community? Guys, we don't say these things just because we think that you should be in community. No, what it does is it positions you so your faith grows. So you're hearing the word of God. You're around people speaking life into you. And when you think that this is not going to happen and I'm down in the dumps and they failed me and my heart is broken, there are people around you saying, don't give up. Keep going. Keep praying. Keep reading that Bible. We are in this together. And then the last question is this. Do I live like Jesus is alive? Do I? Do I live like Jesus is really alive? Or do I live like he doesn't exist? 
Dishonor brings death to relationships. And the key to all of this is, can you bow the knee? Can you humble yourself? God has positioned you today. You've just heard his word. It's very clear. The ball is in your court. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you and we are asking for your help, God. Right now, all all religious talk, all, all of this stuff, push to the side. Just a get real moment with God. Many of us in the room are not okay. And our relationships are showing that. And God, today, we come before you and first we repent and we say that we have lived like you don't exist. We've assumed the worst. We've entered into conflict. Many of us now have isolated ourselves. But God, today, we're just stopping the stubbornness. And no matter what the other party does, No matter anything, we just bow the knee to you, Jesus. And we say that before pride, there is dishonor. But with humility, there is wisdom. And so God, in just a moment, maybe when we come forward and grab the elements of communion, maybe some of us in the room today, we actually need to physically bow the knee. We've been talking about it too much. We've been saying we will, this, that, and the other. But today, through the power of your Holy Spirit in this grace-filled moment, maybe we actually need to physically bow the knee up here in the altars to show the posture of our heart and to just say, God, I lay this relationship down today. It's bringing death to the relationship. And I value you and I value this person. I'm filling the gaps with trust, and I need you to help me today. It's not about the behavior. It's about the belief. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Speak to us. Guide us. We pray this all in the holy, in the valuable name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?